but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Kay is a dear friend and philosophy in residence over at Radreads, which is a business he started after leaving a lucrative career on Wall Street. In this conversation, you can expect to learn how Kay battled with and works through his feelings of self-doubt and how he wrestled with his desires for fame and validation. He also shares a really powerful insight that emerged during a mastermind that we attended together and how the question of winning the game of life has evolved for him over the years into what he describes now as a pursuit of aliveness. I made the decision to work with sponsors for this podcast. And there are two main reasons for this. The first is that it helps me dedicate more time and resources to having deep dive conversations like this one and hopefully growing the show. And the second is that there are a few companies that have honestly made a big difference in my life. And since I consider them to be just such a huge value add, I'm genuinely excited to talk about what they offer and I hope they'll be useful to you as well. First up is Inside Tracker. One of the things that I've changed my mind on in the past year or so is the value of getting blood panels taken on a regular basis, ideally every six months, according to Dr. Peter Atiyah. This is opposed to waiting until you have an actual health issue. Inside Tracker tests your blood, your DNA, and they basically provide clear science-backed recommendations around nutrition, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle recommendations. They've also recently added hormone testing alongside a bunch of other really important biomarkers that aren't typically included in traditional blood panels, and ApoB is a good example. And for myself, despite generally feeling pretty great, my most recent set of results show that I have some pretty major work to do to reduce levels of inflammation. So. I'll be following some of their dietary and supplement recommendations to hopefully address this. So I really recommend making this something that you make time for at least once or twice per year. And you can save 20% at insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. That's insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. Next up, we have The Plunge. I reached out to the founder of The Plunge, Ryan, after hearing his personal story on Danny Miranda's podcast. And I've shared many times how getting in icy cold water every day helps me to move through some pretty intense grief in the past. And it taught me what it meant to surrender. And these days I use their plunge pretty much every single day. It's, it's basically like a high stakes meditation or a, a mirror to my own internal state. And the Plunge team have done a phenomenal job architecting what I really consider to be the best cold plunge in the world. And it doesn't get grimy, unlike the, the converted chest freezers that I used to use. And for optimal health benefits, I recommend doing this deliberate cold exposure for about 11 minutes per week in total. And if you're interested, you can save $150 on their full unit at plunge.com forward slash curious. That's plunge.com forward slash curious. And this episode is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my flagship five-week bootcamp. 
designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate calm, conquer reactivity, and build emotional regulation. Our fourth cohort will be running in April 2024, and applications are open right now. And my sense is that if this conversation and others like it on the podcast resonate with you, then you'd likely be a great fit for the upcoming cohort. This curriculum represents my attempt to distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. It's run in an intensive cohort-based way. Since this is, in my experience, the most efficient way to not only learn the information, but also embody the protocols in your everyday life. Previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep, the quality of their relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 750 students complete this training, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more details and apply to join the next cohort at nsmastery.com. That's nsmastery.com. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Kay. Thank you, my friend, my, my surfing buddy, my, the reason Instagram was worth it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, maybe, maybe that should be our starting point. Um, but uh, it's, man, it's so great to have you here. I, I feel like we should have had this conversation like years ago, um, but yeah. I'm glad it's happening now. Why did I make Instagram worth it for you? <laughs> you um, so, so we met right when stories came out. So this is like yes. 2016. It's like a long time. And ago. I think you were following my newsletter and you were posting stories of you surfing. And I was like, dope, man, cool. And you're like, hey, nice to meet you. Like, are you surfing soon? And we just kind of had that exchange for a handful of years. And then our worlds kind of reunited in kind of a spiritual slash course creator slash Twitter world, like it kind of like, I always felt like there were two different worlds that we were hanging out with. And then they, they met on Twitter again. Totally. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple of years after we met in person at a, a mastermind for, for online entrepreneurs. So yeah, three chapters of, of uh, crisscrossing paths, but really like the, the beauty, I mean, you know, like social media gets the gets a really bad rap. It's like, oh, it's all these narcissists or it's killing your brains or this or that. But I'm like, look at how organic, like we almost have like three chapters of friendship mm. across three different, you know, multiple different mediums, totally organic, no peacocking, nothing, like really finding each other at like in our everydayness. Yeah, yeah, I I so agree. I I mean, I feel like some of my closest friends have been I've been connected to them through through Twitter mostly. Yeah. Um Same and, and some some Instagram as well. And so whilst it can be a real drain and life suck if you if you don't kind of use it intentionally, I'm I'm so grateful for it. It's been amazing. Well, um I want to I want to ask you this question because I ask all my guests this question and I actually want to hear hear your answer. So, do you consider yourself to have been an exceptionally curious child? And if so, could you tell me something that you might have been curious about? You know, someone was asking me earlier, where did you become so introspective? And I said, I don't really know because, you know, my parents were immigrants. 
they came to New York. They didn't know many people. They didn't have any family. They didn't know anyone. And so it's kind of not a, a fertile ground for curiosity. I, I don't want to say it was survival because they had jobs. Um, so it wasn't a concern about putting food on the table. Mm. But there wasn't that spaciousness for curiosity. Mm. That being said, as I say that, I'm just having flashback memories of my dad, you know, this Cambodian man living in New York who was teaching himself colloquial, like uh, colloquial English by reading the Playboy collection of jokes. So it was like he was reading dirty jokes to uh, better understand American culture, right? And we were playing Michael Jackson thriller nonstop. So maybe, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? So anyway, that that that's uh that sets a little bit of the, of the stage. I, I wouldn't identify as I wouldn't call myself curious as a child. I would actually have used much more, many more words like methodical mm -hmm. or disciplined or mm -hmm. serious um, or assiduous. Um, mm -hmm. Those are probably more of the words that come to mind, but. I do think that there was, I was a little bit of a, of a misfit of sorts in mm. that I was, I think that, I think my curiosity really was around like how the game of life is played. And what I mean by that is that, I mean, I think that this is a kind of classic entrepreneurial origin story, which I don't view this as my entrepreneurial origin story, but I was always trying to look around and ways to make money. So I do think that my curiosity and my creativity were always tied to making money. Mm -hmm. And so one of my earliest memories of money, we were in in, uh, in Pattaya in, uh, in Thailand, and there were all these hermit crabs. And I just, I found these plastic bags and I would just collect hermit crabs and I would fill them up. And then I was seven, probably maybe nine. And I, I remember going up to a Thai woman who was probably kind of selling fruit on the beach or something like that. And I go up to her and, and, I, and you know, she doesn't speak English and I don't speak Thai. And I basically offered to sell her my bag of hermit crabs. And she, she gave me like a nice smile. Okay, kid. And then I walked a, a bit further and then there was a, a European couple and, you know, do you want to buy my hermit crabs for, you know, five baht or whatever? And they kind of like, cute kid, thanks, but no thanks. And I could come up with countless stories from pre-age 12 that had some flavor of, of that. So taking some kind of situation, the curiosity being, how do I make money from this situation? And then applying creativity and some of the other words that I use, assiduousness and methodicity uh, <laughs> to uh, to make it happen. Mm. I, I love that phrase, like how to win the game of life. And, and I wonder how did your answer to that kind of lead like how did that guide the first like three decades of your life like where did that where did your attempt to answer that question lead you uh money power and sex great <laughs> <laughs> or is that like there's that dmx song money cash hose money cash hose um uh -huh. so 
again, I'm, I think with someone like, I wouldn't go on any podcast and, and kind of split hairs on the stories I'm going to tell, but I feel like this is, if I'm going to do it, you know, I've been really thinking about just a quick sidetrack, but I'll bring it back. Uh, Hassan Minaj, the king, he, uh, the comedian, interviewed Barack Obama, multiple Netflix specials, Today Show. There just was an article that came out on him. And he has these amazing origin stories of getting like roughed up by the cops. He's a Muslim in New York uh, City, getting roughed up by the cops after 9-11. This uh, FBI informant that tried to infiltrate, you know, Pakistan, or he's Indian or Pakistani um, kids playing basketball in the local gym and like roughing them up being like, hey, are you part of a terrorist organization? And it basically came out that all those stories are made up. Oh, wow. And he defends them being there was a emotional resonance to them all. So like, uh, and, and again, I haven't dug deep into the story, but it's made me really think about every story that I tell that's like, what's the, what's the emotional, you know, it wasn't emotional resonance, emotional truth. Hmm. I'm like, what's the emotional truth? And um, I am a decent storyteller. It's like, where have I added like mm. padding to to yeah. make everything fit. So I feel like with you, I could be like, I think this story is true and this is what I'm going to try my best to, but I'm very <laughs> hyper aware of it, uh, uh, of it now. But okay, so back to the game, uh, the the winning the game of life, money, money, power, sex. This is the truth is I was awkward, skinny, nerdy. Uh, I was the, the, the nicest compliment that a woman would give me, a girl would give me at that time is, you're the kind of guy that everyone wants to be friends with, right? Like that's the worst. I mean, at, at 13, that's like a death sentence. Like you're mm -hmm. never getting relegated to friend zone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think that much of that pursuit of winning the game of life was partially internalized by my parents, which was like, get a good education, get good grades, go to a good college, make good money, and you'll be happy. There was that path. And then there was this other path of like, living in New York City in the East Village in the 90s, where it's like, there's a lot of different paths to, you know, status and and, and all those things. But I think I, I just, again, if you take that curiosity muscle, I think I had a really good knack at just being like, oh, if the point of this game is to make money, what's the fastest way to make money? And uh, I remember like, dad, teach me about stocks. He's like, oh, they only lose, they only go down. My dad is terrified of stocks to this day. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. And and I'm like, how can I buy a stock? Where do I go? What book should I read? And this is pre-internet. So you're like going to bookstores to find books on stocks. Uh, and so I think that once you're like, oh, there was a strand to pull on entrepreneurship. Like, oh, I'm going to make web pages. And I was making web pages as a 16-year-old charging 20 bucks an hour in 1990 dollar terms. So that's like 40 nice. bucks an hour, that's today's dollars cash uh, as a 16-year-old. And then taking my knowledge of the stock market and investing that money in stocks. Nicely done. So like, <laughs> so again, I, I don't know, I don't know exactly where that came from, but I think it all felt like very natural to me, even though I wasn't I didn't get the best grades. I was a valedictorian in high school, but like in college, I was very average college student grade wise. Uh, I didn't work at the elite banks that, you know, the, the, the Goldman's and all that. I was at a second, second slash third tier bank, but it always seemed very obvious 
to me, like what, what this looks like, where you want to be like five years ahead and what it takes to get there. And usually it's just some combination of like hard work and just 10, you know, channeling it into the right channels. And so I won't bore, bore you with the details, but I think on wall street, it, it actually felt very obvious to me how to make a lot of money. And then, so that was one game, how to make a lot of money and get promoted. And then the other game is like, well, once you make all that money, like what do you do with it mm -hmm. and investing it and investing has always felt very easy to me because hand on my heart, all I do is buy the S and P 500 and never sell. So I've never, that's all I own. I have some other stuff, but 80% of what I own is the S and P 500 and those shares that that 16 year old kid bought with the web development money, I still own them. And so mm -hmm. not only have they appreciated in value, I've never paid taxes on them. I just haven't sold them. Right. I haven't sold them. So, right. so it's almost like it was, it almost felt like too easy to some, to some, to some extent. Hmm. But then our, one of our mutual friends or, and later in life, he said, you know, the question that came up was like, are you playing the right game? Right. Hmm. It's like games are great. Winning games is great. And I, I think often, uh, you know, on Wall Street, people love poker. Like this mm. is just, I'm, I'm very bad at poker, but people love poker. It's like, I always wonder if you were a really good poker player, but you hated poker, should you play poker? Like I, it was almost this, like, this hypothetical I would always ask myself because everyone's doing some version of that. There's something about poker that you either find it really sexy or really dirty. Like there's just kind of no like in between there. And it's just like, at what point do you opt out of a game when there's all these kind of additional layers of status of money and so on. So yeah, long-winded story. But. No, no, it's great. So I'm curious, like what was it that shifted for you where you felt like you were, you'd maybe like won that game of making money to a certain degree, or you'd realized that there were other, there were maybe other rules in the game of life that you hadn't been, you hadn't been previously aware of and that you wanted to, you wanted to shift because you because you made this this big shift when you were I guess 30 35 35 yeah yeah okay so one was uh I had I had no control over my time mm -hmm. so you can have a big paycheck but and you know we were talking even with being a VC back founder right you you just don't, you don't own your time, right? You, you're responsible, you report to a board or investors or shareholders and so on. Yep. So one was just no agency about, uh, with my time and really everything. And this is funny because I think your audience would just laugh at this. And my audience is like, would be like, oh, that's cool. The last eight years, I worked a solid 60 hours a week, which mm -hmm. it was fixed. It was like seven to seven. And that is considered pretty easy in Wall Street. And I've, I, I, to this, I mean, now I'm different. Now I'm like, can't be bothered to work some days. <laughs> but uh, until recently, I'm like, if you give me a 60 hour, and then the, the key was that it was predictable, which is like, once you left, you were, you were pretty much done working. Whereas in the other jobs before, it's like 90, but they can call you at any point, anytime. There's some jobs where, part of your contract is you're not allowed to be in a place that doesn't have cell phone service. Whoa. And if you do, you need to get, bring like a Starlink phone or whatever. So super phone, super bad phone. Uh, that's like part of the contract is like, you cannot be out of service range uh -huh. ever. Uh -huh. So I think the first 
pebble or the first like it's like i don't know i'm maybe i'm wealthy on paper but i don't own my time mm-hmm. so that that was the first one but i think i think the second one was that the culture that i was in was very much uh like uh to win you need to tear someone down mm. and that that's not a like I refused to let myself. So I would say on Wall Street, I always had a, a head, my head on a swivel. So like I was a really nice mm-hmm. guy, but like mm-hmm. you try to take me down, I will fucking fight you back. Like you're not taking me down just because I'm nice. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wouldn't tear anyone down. So it was this like weird place to exist. And I just, it just didn't make me comfortable that like the starting premise is tear others down to to succeed. So I didn't like that part. <laughs> I, I, I can I can see that. I can see why that might be the case. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people don't mind it. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that there was something, I think this is where the creativity did stand out and the curiosity did stand out is um, I just like, I, I love to tinker and I just love trying stuff. And I was just tinkering and I love the internet. I mean, we're this, the whole Instagram bromance that we had, you know, I, I love the internet and I was always tinkering, trying stuff out. You know, this is pre-face like pre-Facebook era. So this kind of blogging era of the internet. And I was just just I love trying stuff out on the internet. I was just always fascinated by the internet. Mm-hmm. And I just that tinkering mindset was like, man, why can't I tinker all day? Like, why is my tinkering limited to pre 7 a.m. and post 7 p.m. and the weekends? Right? Like, could I design a life for myself where tinkering is the raison d'etre, so to speak? And I think that was probably the ultimate um, lever. And, and then, then there's a very pragmatic thing is like when you have a child, the passage of time becomes crystal clear. Like, oh, it's mm. it's Soraya's first birthday. Oh, oh my God. I remember holding her in the hospital. It's been a year since that. Oh, it's her second birthday. Oh, wow. I remember her first birthday. Like that was a party where the parents got drunk. And now the second birthday, she actually, we actually have to do stuff with the kid, you know? So like the passage of time becomes so (laughs) crystal clear when you have a kid, whereas like 25 to 34, which is like, you know, it's like a giant blur. Like, (laughs) it's like, I just, all I know is I went to a lot of weddings. So you you said that you said that you still found yourself working kind of sixty hour uh, weeks, even kind of when you were working on rad reads and working on your own thing. Whereas now it sounds like you're much more much more loose or just much more flexible. What do you think shifted between those two versions of yourself? Yeah, um, I think a lot of when I became an entrepreneur. And I wonder if, if if you experience this too. It's scary, and I think that it's it's. There's a reason why people don't leave Wall Street. Is you know when you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, seven figures, like it's hard to go to an eat what you kill mindset, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, cash flow is. In the early days of entrepreneurship, cash flow is it's low and lumpy, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of the opposite of Wall Street, which is fat and steady. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think at the beginning, I just had this like deep insecure, deep insecurity slash fear. I don't know if I can cut this. 
I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I, I don't know if I made a, the wrong decision. And I think that in these early days, my initial response to anything that felt threatening was to like outwork the problem. Mm. So I remember once uh, someone talked shit about me, someone who I respected talked shit about me and, and it got back to me and I was really angry and, and upset, but mostly I was just hurt. And I was like, I could, I need to prove to this person that I can do it. And so, <laughs> you know what I did? I immediately did a hundred burpees. That's, that's, that's how like, that's how maniacal it was. Cause it was like, if I can prove to myself that I can do hard things and like hard things being like hundred burpees on command, then I can do hard things, which is like so fucking broken and in so many ways. And there's so much hurt and, and fear wrapped into all that and, and pain. But I think that the early days, I mean, the early days, I'd say, I mean, I've been occupied for eight and a half years now. I mean, we can talk about the different seasons, but I mean, I've felt some version of that for a good seven years mm. and like different levels of intensity. Mm. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing a hundred burpees when I missed my sales numbers for SYP, our online course. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, but to answer your question, I think that for a very long time, if there's something challenging, if there's something that scares you, if there's uncertainty, if there's something that's out of your control, the answer is always to work harder. I mean, in some cases, that's a pretty good strategy, right? Like in what, in what way did that not end up uh, working? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a great question. I think... Well, work harder can also be confused for a lot of things. So um, I remember in those early days, work harder often meant like read more books about entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, what, what we would call $100 work, like things that feel like faux, F-A, French faux, F-A-U-X productivity. Mm -hmm. So I think that there was that, you know, some element of work harder was um, more consumption, which is not always the right thing but i think that i think that part of the problem with the work harder mindset is that and you know this is something that, that that you can put much better words to than i can but you're living in a constant fight or flight and there's a huge cost physically creatively emotionally relationship wise e <laughs> compassionately <laughs> you know there's a huge cost to yeah. always being in the fight or flight mode mm -hmm. and i think that that is the challenge the also the thing so there was that i think for me one of the bigger an equally as big challenge is that um kind of ego was wrapped into all of that sense of self sense of mm -hmm. self-worth so when the guy talks shit behind my back, it's an attack to my self-worth and to my ego. And so I'm fighting back. I'm fighting this dragon, but it's like some dude just made some passing comment, right? So it's just like this, the ego channels this ferocious energy and then like misdirects it to like a hundred burpees where, you know? <laughs> and so I think that there's just so much of that happening in so many different permutations and so many different manifestations 
that it was very cloudy. But I think to my credit that I was I was getting coached a lot and I'd never had a coach until I became an entrepreneur. I'd never really been introspective in the even in the way I would define it. Um, and, and so you, I had coaches. You worked with Andrew Taggart as, as well, right? If I, I worked remember. for Andrew Taggart for many, many years, uh, but even a few coaches before him. And so even as that was happening, there were people around me that were like, okay, you realize that a hundred burpees does not solve your entrepreneurship problems <laughs> like, <laughs> in the most loving and earnest and caring way they would say that. And so I had, you know, I think that, you know, in finance, they talk about volatility. So if you, you know, it's like really high highs and really low lows, and you're kind of moving to some direction. I think that as the years went by, I still had that volatility, but it just, the highs weren't as high and the lows weren't as low. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's kind of, that was really like the journey that I was on and plus you know, other realizations and other motivations that, that, that we, we may or may not talk about. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we, we talked a fair bit about in, in LA was around money. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering kind of through this lens of like how to, how to win at the game of life, how might you say that your relationship to money, let's say money and wealth has mm -hmm. shifted over the, over the last decade or so. Yeah. It's hard, man. It's, I feel like it, I'm always trying to measure something. Hmm. Right. And, and, and so I give you like, I give you an example, like, I mean, obviously like bank accounts and things like that, stock market portfolios, things like that. But, the, but it, even like more harm, like I wake up in the morning and I meditate, uh, almost immediately. And then I'm like borderline type two diabetes on the men though. And then right after I meditate, I'll go prick my finger to measure my blood glucose level. And there's something like really satisfying about that calculation, about the number that it spits out. Mm. So if it spits out anything below a hundred, I feel really good about myself. Like, yeah, you're on the right track and you know, all these things you're doing. If it spits out a number over a hundred, which, which is quite rare these days, but in the past there, there were a lot of numbers over a hundred, then it's like, oh, what you, you know, it's probably because you ate those pistachios before bed or, you know, you drank, you know, that drink was not as, that margarita wasn't skinny, um, you know. But now that it's like, it's almost like I need to see that number. It's like there's safety in seeing that number. But I think it's a very false sense of safety, right? And I think that it's almost, there's like a clinging to it. It's like there's a clinging to feeling special or there's a clinging to needing to fix something, but it's very difficult to, to not have either. There's like, mm -hmm. it's almost like Pema Chodron uses the word groundlessness. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, it's so absurd because now I'm on the right side of the trade. I've right-sided, right-sized my blood sugar. So it's always a good number. Yet it's like a little... Andrew, my, my, my coach, he called it, a, it's like a micro orgasm. <laughs> it's just like this little tiny jolt of like feeling good for a second. Uh -huh. And so I'm like, it's like, like I crave this micro orgasm. And so the, I could see the title of this podcast, like surfing <laughs> money and micro orgasms. Uh, um, but 
it's like, why, like, why do I, and that's like such a harmless thing, especially cause I'm on the, the right side of the trade. But even when I'm on the wrong side of the trade, I still wanted to, to see the bad number. Cause I wanted mm-hmm. to have something to fix. It's just like, can't you just be like, why do you look so, it's so inconsequential, this, this number, but you look so forward to it, like with the, the, the intensity of a microorgasm. And so money is like that times a thousand, right? Cause the, <laughs> the stakes feel higher. The numbers are bigger, you know, not many people are playing the blood glucose game, but, uh, you know, but maybe in Boulder and LA, you know, in FR, sometimes Lisa gets competitive. She's like, what was your number? It's like, cause the goal is not to have the lowest number either. Cause then you're, you know, then you're anemic or something. Uh, so money is that finger prick times a thousand on a global level with so much more history and so much. And so there is this, you know, and, and people, People, you know, especially people that are in the world of money, entrepreneurs and finance people, it's like, it's like, the, what's your net worth, right? And like, no one talks about it explicitly because it's kind of uncouth mm-hmm. to ask someone what, but everyone's kind of, especially in finances, like they've like bucketed people like, oh, like that, that's an eight figure guy, or that's mm-hmm. a six figure guy, that's a seven figure guy. And there's all this like very coded language, like, oh, he works on the sell side. It's like the most that they can make is, you know, a million dollars. Like, oh, he's portfolio manager. Like, oh, like that's a $5 million person, you know? Oh, he, you know, how many homes do they have? Right. So it's all so that the game, right. And so we started earlier. It's like, oh, playing that game is very addictive. And, and there's this, you, you get a lot of dopamine, a lot of microorgasms, maybe macroorgasms from winning the, winning the net worth game. Mm-hmm. But the challenge for me was I opted out of that game. So there's no way that I could, it's very hard to win that game when you're not, you know, it's like bringing a gun to a knife, uh, bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? It's like, good luck. And so I have rambled a bit, but I think that the way, if I remember the question correctly, it's like, how did that all show up is it was, it, it's all encompassing, right? And it's like, everything is, uh, everything can be viewed through this lens of like, how much money does this person have? How much money does this person make? Which then translates into, you know, how good are they? How special are they? How, Mm. you know, uh, how important are they? And it's, it's very exhausting. And it's also very hard to escape. And again, that's where I go back to the diabetes pinprick i'm like if you get a high off of that imagine the high you get off this other game mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i really appreciate how open you are around talking about this stuff i think it's it's gen i mean money sex and money and sex are two of the most taboo topics i think in our culture in some ways and there's so much mm. so much shadow there and something that i i'm i'm interested in is is like people's their relationship to money, but specifically like their money stories. Like, mm-hmm. do, do you feel like there was a a certain story where money equated, you know, for some people it's safety, for some people it's yeah. like security, for some people it's it's like um, attention or, or success, yeah. which means validation. Do you think that that, as the number went up, do you think there was like something in you that was being fed in that way? I think that, I think that's a wonderful question. I think for me that the, 
it started with safety and we grew up kind of lower middle class and you know people have heard me on podcasts like i was mugged you know multiple times growing up as a kid and i was scared to walk to school even though we lived in a very middle class neighborhood a stuyvesant town in new york city for those who are familiar but new york in the 90s like it was just pretty common to like go see your car and it was burnt you know <laughs> like uh or you know like kids would get mugged on the way to school and that was just part of being a a kid in New York, like it, it almost transcends. Like people, kids on the Upper West Side going to you know fifty thousand dollars private schools would get mugged on the way to school as well. So it wasn't like a socioeconomic thing. Um, so safety was definitely one. And if I had to parse it through, I have not gone on this exploration. But you know, my dad is is a genocide survivor, and that's kind of a, a part of our family history that we don't really talk about. And so. Again, I don't really know how, if and how that's impacted me, but I'm sure that there are imprints of that. I mean, definitely on my dad and and, and thus on me. Um, I don't really know though. But I, so I'd say initially safety. And I think that the thing that I realized, this is, I get say, I, again, it's, it's nice to get interviewed by your friends because you can, you can kind of like uh, put more color on different statements. But I think one thing I realized recently is that I wanted to, like, I care a lot about being famous and not famous in the, uh, you know, Mr. Beast type way or Leonardo DiCaprio type way or Kelly Slater type way, but like famous in, in like our, our bubble or my bubble, maybe your adjacent bubble, but like a Morgan Housel way or a Ramit Sethi way or mm. a James Clear kind of way. And but I also know that whatever insecurity I feel today, if I have James Clear level of fame, I will feel the exact same level of insecurity. Like I, I, I have, I've had enough. This, this will sound arrogant, but I've had in, I've had enough successful moments in my life to know that the thing that the success didn't heal the inner pain. I know I'm one hundred fifty percent convinced of that. There's no amount of success that will heal whatever insecurities that I have, which we've talked about some, and I'm happy to share share them all. So, but I, there's something about, so I think that the money game to me has almost evolved into a fame and notoriety game of, and I do think it's ultimately driven by the need to feel validated, mm -hmm. which is, at its core, a fear of my own unlovability. And I remember when I was a kid, I was like, no woman will ever, ever love me. Like I just, I just felt that at my core. And I don't know why, like, I, it's not like something traumatic happened to you. I just, you know, I think that there was partially the immigrant, like outsider mindset. I think my parents were just like, don't think about girls. And then I think that, you know, <laughs> I was relegated to to the friend zone, you know, quite young. Uh, and it was just very insecure. Uh, and so I remember, I think I've said this on, on a podcast once, but I, I think I've rarely said this. I remember once going through this whole exercise in my head. I was like, well, if no one will marry me, like, could I adopt a kid as a single male so that I could have a family? 
And I thought about this, I was probably my 20, like 16 to 18 when I thought about this. Mm-hmm. And then I told a friend this, like when I was maybe 20. And I, I had, then I was starting to date women and my confidence grew a lot. And my friend's like, no, the single straight men just can't like go adopt kids. It's like, they're so low on the pecking order of like who can, so that good thing I didn't hear that at 16. But I do think that, yeah, man, I was just, I was just really scared of that I just be alone my whole life. And it, I think it's hard for people who know me, who met me later in life to be like, that's so incongruous to how you show up now. I mean, like you, you, like you can't turn a social media channel without seeing some fucking video of me. It's like, that's kind of like, incong- but I think that like, that's actually not incongruous. It's actually the other side of the coin, right? Totally. Uh, of that. And, and I wonder that, you know, it's like I have a very loving relationship with you know the really important people in my life i have a great group of friends but so why do i care about if my fear is unlovability and i believe that fame and validation will bring me love like but i have love so i i think like hmm. something feels br- like wrong like hmm. tricky there or, or uh, inconsistent and coherent mm-hmm. and actually that's when i turned to you at that retreat in la and I said to you, I was like, I think that whatever I'm feeling through all this, words are no longer helpful. Because mm. I could write the logical case of every, I think I just pretty much described it. Very rational, like the dots kind of connect until they don't, mm. which is why do you feel this way? Um, and I've done a lot of coaching and talk style therapy and I do, I do feel like I don't think the breakthrough to heal whatever is still hurting here is going to come from more talking or more reading books yeah man I really appreciate you sharing that and in many ways I feel like a parallel with my journey as well there were, there mm. were like many many say most of my years at school I felt this this deep sense of aloneness and this sense of kind of isolation and I think you know 10 years later, kind of traveling and attempting to become, let's say, as interesting as possible in order to maybe mitigate that from being the case, like, you know, starting a podcast called Curious Humans, you know, traveling, all these things. And a couple of weeks ago, actually, I did, my my friend guided me through a somatic journey where I almost like regressed in age and went back to like a much younger version of me and, and felt this sense of like, like existential aloneness that I think I experienced in, in that age. And yeah, it was, it was very moving and interesting that like in, in some ways, you know, I, I love what has come from that, but I think in many ways that was the seed of what has is now been like this creative force. And, and I think, honestly, I think that's true for many people that they're the specific way in which they're like, they're wounded by life usually in their early years then becomes the kind of, the way in which they they give their gift or they they share their creative gifts with with other people. Can I ask you some of this like a lot of like as I hear myself talk there's a lot of like there's a shame in it and the mm-hmm. shame is that like dude your parents loved you you were middle class 
No one ever laid a finger on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got mugged a few times on your walk to school, but that was New York in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And like, it's almost like who are who are you to be having these problems, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's like this inner voice. And I, didn't, I, I remember reading in a, in a book recently, like a child's pain is a child's pain irrespective of their socioeconomic standing. Right, right, totally. And, but at the same time, I'm, I, and maybe there's this kind of more Gen X, Gen X y version of me that's like, dude, like your problems aren't that bad. Like, mm, mm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. suck it up, buttercup, you know, type, <laughs> type mindset. Right, right. I, I mean, my, my sense or like my perspective on that is that the, the way that, I mean, this is probably a bigger conversation around privilege, but I think that, there are very important needs that we have as children and, and as adults around being seen and witnessed and being met emotionally. And if those, and which then connect to a sense of like felt sense of safety that we feel. And if those aren't met, then it's, it doesn't matter. Like you could have, your parents could be, could be millionaires. You could have like all of the friends on the outside, but if you're not being, being seen and, and held and kind of, um, acknowledged in whatever experience you're having and you're making some experience wrong, then that will create that sense of, of internal pain essentially. And yeah, it's not the same as, as like a kind of typical single event trauma where someone is abused or there's physical violence where it's very easy to point to. But I think on, on an emotional level, we experience, we experience it as the same. And so we still, we, we still carry that around with us. Thank you. Yeah, that's, I feel like, I, I don't know, I just, I don't feel like there's many people I could have this type of conversation with. So I, I, <laughs> I thank you for, for, for A, for, for providing the space and B for, for always being so, you know, so, so thoughtful about this, this, these types oh. of, of topics. No, I, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, I, I really appreciate your, and, and I felt this when we were together in, in LA, there's this like sense of like directness and willingness to share whatever is whatever's true and like alive and real for you and that's like i think it really creates a sense of trust and i and i imagine it's why you know fifty thousand people plus like trust you because there is this sense of like honesty about your experience and you you don't kind of hide even if there are still stories around like you want to like make more money than the people that you worked with in Wall Street. You're just like honest about that. And I think mm-hmm. that's relieving and oh, almost like you. gives other people permission to to share or feel whatever they're afraid afraid to to say. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, because I think as I, I think that there's a, this is a small tangent, but I think there's a whole group of people on the internet that are the exact opposite of this. And when I watch them, you know, grow a 50,000 person email list in eight months when it took me eight years, I'm like, fuck these motherfuckers. <laughs> and there's AI, AI newsletters. <laughs> yeah. I need to reground myself. That is like, again, it's like, you know, what is it kind of comes full circle? What is the game? Right. And I do think the game at this point is just like, it's, it's earnestness. It's, you know, no, like truth, truth telling. Um, and really, you know, I'm now I'm going to throw a bunch of woo, woo words out, uh, but you know, it's just, it's just, just a genuine love, right? Just a, a love for other humans, a, a love and admiration for, for everyone's 
stories and 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 what you know what conversations can ensue i think that's what motivates me is like when i you were there when i was like yeah i have all these issues with like talking about i feel uncomfortable talking about how much money i made or i have i feel like it invalidates different things that i've done and there's so much shame in that and people are going to troll me and all that and and the resounding message was just put it like that's your path right there is to kind of walk into that and walk through that mm. and just like when i actually released the episode it was just like the craziest response in like super tactical ways like there was one like cnbc had an article where they didn't want to re release it because i wouldn't tell them how much money i had made mm. and so once i said to the world like okay this is how mm. much money i made in my best year mm. i was like here's the podcast go nuts they release it. Of course, they take the number and they put in the headline and it went viral. It went fucking viral. And so, uh -huh, so, but that, uh -huh. that's like almost, that's like the funny, the funny one, but the, 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 the deeper one. And, and I was on a podcast earlier, deeper one. And this is like, I, I I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this, but, um, from anytime there's a press story, three to five Cambodian Americans reach out to me and there's a term for elders that's like a uh, brother it's bong like b-o-n-g mm -hmm. and so they email me even though I, I i don't i'm not particularly connected to my cambodian heritage they email me and they're like hey bong k it was so great to see other cambodian american role models mm -hmm. you know leading the trail and i'm like Every, so like, uh, uh, every year, a couple publications will write about me. There'll be this huge virality traffic surge. And then two to five Cambodians will reach out. And then we like, we maintain the friendship from that. It's just like, so now I'm like, I, I feel like I've hit a point in my like life where I'm like, that's worth so much more to me than the marginal X dollar. Mm. And the X likes or retweets or all that. And so I feel very lucky. You know, I had to kind of, I'm still working through all of the, you know, the attachments that I have to different metrics and numbers and what my blood sugar is every morning. Uh, but I feel very, very, when those things happen, I'm like, this is, this is where the, the this is where the, the juice is at. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. that thank you so much for sharing. One of the, one of the things I, I was going through some of your, your blog posts before this conversation and you wrote, I only do things that make me come alive. I think this was from one of the recent posts and I'm wondering what, like, what does that, what does that mean for you? And how do you, th again, it feels like a big shift to kind of having aliveness be like the North star from yeah. in the beginning, maybe it was money. And then it was kind of building a list and success in the entre entrepreneurship. And now it feels like it's like, aliveness is the thing that you're yeah. maybe it's like the new way to like the infinite game of life like, like the, mm -hmm. the the game that keeps on keeps on playing yeah i it was a shift and i think honestly it was i mean we keep talking about this this magical retreat because it was magical uh in la mm -hmm. i think that the well a starting point, the opposite of aliveness is feeling dead inside. So, um, so it's a, you know, if you look at it that way, it's, 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 it's pretty basic, but yeah, I've been reading, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Do you, it's a uh, tick knock. How do you, Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh. I was reading being peace 
by him. And one of the first paragraphs is about meditation. And he's like, you should try to smile during meditation. And uh, he's like, because if you smile during meditation, I'm paraphrasing, you, you will smile when you're not meditating. Hmm. And there is this part of me that's like, you can't just tell people to smile. Or what if your natural state is smiliness, right? It's almost like two different, you know, I know it's like two different sides of a coin, but, but there are definitely people whose natural states are smiliness. And he would, I think his argument is that, you know, you have to, you have to uh, embody smiliness and, and, and then you smile all the time, you know, during meditation in, in real life. But I, th I thought it was just this interesting, it was just so, so pithy and ba basic, but it was also like, yeah, like, why can't you smile uh, like all the time? It's like, oh, hmm. but I, uh, I had a bad quarter or my, my kid won't eat their dinner or, you know, I'm, you know, my bald spot's getting worse. Like, <laughs> why can't you smile all the time? And, and I think that, so I, I just use that as a useful frame. It's like, imagine a world where you're, you're resting, you know, there's like resting bitch face and it's like there's resting smile face. Uh, imagine a world where resting smile face is just the norm. And, and, and it doesn't seem that out of, it doesn't seem like a crazy idea. So to go back to the aliveness, I mean, I think, you, I, think I had to let go of the pursuit of money as a singular goal and the pursuit of fame as a singular goal, because in earnest, and, and, and to be honest, those were the ones that felt the least alive. And so I don't have to even tell you about the bazillion, you know, social media engagement tricks that they tell you to grow your following, to go viral, to, to whatever. And I would just sit down and and be like eight productivity books you should read before you die like fuck this <laughs> like fuck this um and i know that it will hit because i've done it so many times mm -hmm. and i think it it kind of it reached this point where i was almost like physically incapable of doing it and then simultaneously the aliveness kind of bled into other things and things started to emerge very, dare I say, naturally, right? Or intrinsically. Like just the other day, I like felt this like really strong compulsion to make a TikTok. And I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't attached to how many views. I have no followers on TikTok. I've never, not once been viral on TikTok, despite trying very hard. I hired a consultant on TikTok and he was awesome. It just, it was me. I, I was like, I, I terminated the thing early. I'm just like, I can't do this. Like, I, I, this is so painful. But I felt this calling to make a, a TikTok. And so I made it and whatever, like it was it did what all the others do. It has like a thousand views, which is nothing in TikTok land. A bunch of people commented on it, but I was like, that was nice. And so I think that the aliveness, what it made me realize was that there were many, I call them containers. So there's like a social media container. There's a, if you want to be a 
creator or influencer or whatever, there's another monetization container, right? And there's different containers and it's like, this is how you make money. This is how you do social media. This is how this type of person writes a book. And what I realized was the traditional containers as they were set forth, presented, were very unappealing to me. And so in my mind, maybe it's a failure of my own imagination, but you know, I felt like a lot of the podcasts that were out there, everyone was like, hey, start a podcast. Actually, let's do a YouTube channel because that's one that's like very salient these days and from our LA trip. Case start a YouTube channel. And so, of course, you go to YouTube and it's like thumbnail, 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 editing, 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 and, and all that. But I started to put my solo episodes of my podcast on YouTube. And they are my best performing videos outside of some like old productivity videos. And it's literally me talking in front of the camera for an hour with no editing. And so it kind of, this little alarm bell went off. It's like, when you resist the container by pursuing aliveness, there's this oomph, or I, don't, I felt the, it's the word, the urge to say pizzazz. There's this pizzazz factor that just shows up. And sometimes it's gonna work, sometimes it's not gonna work, but it doesn't matter because you showed up with your aliveness. Right, so it's almost like, I, I often have to think about it in quantitative terms. It's like, well, if I'm following aliveness, even if nothing happens, it doesn't matter because the whole point was just to be alive if it's a one minute exercise or a 60 minute exercise. So I will never regret 60 minutes of aliveness. And so if a thousand people watch the video, that's just bonus. And then what, it happen what happens with when you follow the aliveness is you start to see that the containers are, you know, it's kind of like what the Buddhists would call forms, right? It's just, just like things that you try to express with words or, or tangible objects of reality, but it's really not that simple, right? And so from that emerges this playfulness and this curiosity and this joy and this lightness that then makes the aliveness even more present which then kind of filters into all of the creative acts. Now, huge, huge disclaimer. Ever since I implemented this philosophy, I haven't made much money. So, uh, so please take everything I'm saying with a, with a grain of salt. I don't know if what I've just described is the, the key to money, to, to monetization or making money, but I am making money. It's not the most I've ever made. It's not the lowest I've ever made, but I do, yeah, so I'll stop there. I, that, that, was a, that was a long rant. <laughs> that was great. And I feel like I just had this image of like, of like a wearable that you could wake up in the morning and, and be like, Kay spent eight hours yesterday in full aliveness. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and this way of, um, but I, I mean, it sounds like coming back to the beginning of this conversation around, around like playing, playing the game of life. It sounds like, I mean, as long as you have enough money to have your your needs met and you're not in a place of like legitimate scarcity then then perhaps that strategy you know makes the most sense i think so you know i think this will be the next <laughs> i think i'm so angry you know there's I, I a felt part like resistance me... in you as you said I, there was this like <laughs> yeah well i i think I, I mean i think it's still like the old script that like i think that 
intellectually, I believe that like the truest surrender to this will be the best life for my, me and my family. Mm. But I think intellectually, there's still like a few shackles on different parts of my body that are just like, mm. yeah, but um, give yourself three months to figure that out or you know, <laughs> let's talk. But, but I think that with every, I think the beauty of this is that you really, truly, and I feel like you're one of the few people that, that can really appreciate this, is that you really start to see the world in a completely different way. It's kind of like the, you know, you know, red pilling type stuff mm -hmm. where you're just like, you're like, no, this is, this is real. And this is, this is how it's meant to be. And then when you meet people who have, who think you're batshit crazy, you're just like, that's it. You are inhabiting a different reality. And I, I respect that reality because I lived in that reality for many, many years myself. So I think that, that there is, I, I don't, yeah, I'd be lying if I, if I'm just like, oh, this is the way I'm going to live for the rest of my life. Like I just, I don't have the confidence in it, but it feels so much, there's, there's a lot less resistance mm. to it all. And with the decline in resistance. That's the other thing. It's a, you know, to use like nerdy fucking Twitter boy language, uh, thread boy language. There's a lot of Lindy in this. It's like every day that you live it, you just kind of like, oh yeah, like I'm still here. I'm still paying my rent. I'm still thriving. And uh, so I think it's, it's very Lindy in that, in that regard. Mm. Yeah. It's like, it creates more evidence that kind of reinforces the story that it's that it's okay and that it's working and that you're you're you can keep going in this way and and in some ways i mean it feels like the the rules of this of this game are, are to kind of seek out and find the ways in which we're like giving away our aliveness in which we're not setting boundaries or we're doing stuff that feels like we have to endure it and and then that becomes a self-reinforcing loop because when you notice it you hopefully find a way to feel something or change it. And then like more aliveness appears. And so it, it feels like it is, it's becoming like another, you can, you can certainly view it as, as a game to play, I think. And, yeah. and with, with very real like feedback loops and rewards. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was thinking back to that resistance. I, I think that there's kind of this overpowering skeptical voice some somewhere inside of me. That's uh -huh. like, you know, the volume of that voice used to be a 10 and now it's maybe like a two. But that voice is, okay, do you really think you could spend the rest of your time on this earth chasing aliveness? Mm. That's what the voice is saying. It's like, do you really believe that that's possible? And like I said, the voice is at a two. So it's much, it's, it's not scary. It's more just skeptical. Like, mm. I think at a 10, it's like outright scary. That's like burp, 100 burpees level scary. <laughs> and at a two, it's just like, eh, like uh, you know, you just, you just kind of, you're, you're just a little tight, you know? I'm a little tight right now for those of you who are not seeing this on video. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. Um, so I have a few rapid fire questions that I, I wanted to run by you. And then I think we'll, we'll wrap this thing up. So question number one, very much in theme with what we've been talking about, what is your current definition of wealth? Hmm. I'd say being present. And I know that this is a, that there's a, this could easily turn into an Eckhart Tolle um, cliche, but I really believe that you could have all the money in the world. And if you're not present, you know, what's the point? You could have all the free time in the world, but if you're not present, what's the point? 
And, but the, the thing that really moved me about presence is like, is this realization, I think it was Sam Harris that pointed it out. He said, if you're not, it was on the Chris Williamson interview. He said, if you're not present or if there's any hindrance on your presence, you are not giving your fullest love to the people you care the most about. Think about it, right? If your daughter comes home or your puppy greets you at the door and you're thinking about the nine emails you have yet to send, which is me all the time, you can't fully love that person while you're thinking about those nine emails. And it doesn't matter how much fucking money you have and it doesn't matter how much fucking free time you have because you're going to think about something that's going to take you away from the people that you love most. Man, that's brutal. I, I can almost hear the sound of people downloading the Waking Up app as we're, as we're speaking. <laughs> Shout out Sam and Chris. What a phenomenal episode. Phenomenal. Yeah, Skip the I, first I 45 it. minutes on Trump and then um, get into the like meditation stuff. Beautifully filmed as well. Very, very nice. Very nicely filmed. Wow. Well, that, that, was, a, that was a mic drop moment. Um, question number two, what is one concept that has improved your own sense of aliveness? I think um, noticing reactivity. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all have those friends, even our partners, where you want to just give them a little poke just because, you know, like a, like a told you so or a gotcha or uh, I know something that you don't know. And, and then, and that's like, not in conflict. And so when you're in conflict and argument or disagreeing with someone, you know, I, I think that paying attention to my reactivity is, or did you ask what a practice was? Concept, idea, or Concept. practice. Yeah. Practice. So noticing that reactivity, because usually the reactivity is actually not about the other person. It's about me. And using that like micro moment to just like, what, like, what are you trying to, like when you're trying to just told you so to your partner, like what's, what's really happening there. Mm. Uh, and again, I think I've done this enough times that oftentimes like words can't answer it. So then I'll drink, thanks to you, actually, you and a few other teachers, I'll just kind of drop into like breathing or into my body and be like, okay, like, where am I feeling this right now? Mm. But you notice the, you know, cutting someone off, someone cuts you off, you want to yell, like, uh, you know, put aside politics, but even like who, someone's political views anger you, like what's, what's, the, what's behind that reactivity and, and, and really ex ex exploring that because usually there's a lot on the other side of it. There's a lot of that, the wounds, the hurt, the hurt and the sadness. Yeah. Wow. And for listeners wondering, that wasn't a paid promotion of nervous system mastery. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, needless to say, I, I very much resonate with that too. What is something that you're wrestling with in your own life right now? Or what is a, what is an edge for you? I think I have a, a I, my, my obsessive personality, uh, as demonstrated by, you know, burpee, burpee challenges. Burpee reactive, right? When your reactivity is a hundred burpees, you got some serious <laughs> introspection to do. Um, I think that um, 
I recently like took a break from alcohol. Been a, I've been a pretty heavy drinker for for most of my life, adult life, teenage life, and immediately all of that energy was channeled into fitness. And all things considered, that's that's a good trade. But there's more to that story that needs to be that needs to be un, unpacked, right? And I don't know exactly, I, I suspect it's tied into all of the different things that we've talked about, right? Like needing to measure something and the, you know, the, the voice inside of you that's, you know, do you really think aliveness is going to be your guiding light for the rest of your life? That's a two out of 10. I suspect that they're all, and the, you know, the scared child in New York city that gets mugged, scared to walk to school. Uh, and the, and it's also afraid that, you know, no woman will ever love them uh, and they'll have to adopt kids on their own. Um, so I assume that it's, I assume that it's related. <laughs> They're all fucking related. Let's be honest. But I do like this, this need to, it's, it's funny. Like when I used to drink a lot, I would drink and then I was like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking and I'd be buzzed or even drunk. And I'd be like, what's the next thing that could satisfy this? Like, craving that I have, I would start working. Hmm. So I would drink to stop thinking about work. And once the once I hit my limit on drinking, I would satiate myself with more work. <laughs> and then if I got really bored, then, you know, I would like go eat some ice cream or something. So it's just like, it's like the micro orgasm co context. So I, I do think I, I'm a little bit away from the question, but I do think that you know, needing to channel so much intensity into something kind of constantly mm. is something I wouldn't say I'm struggling with, but but I am observing because I, I don't think it it's purely from us it's purely healthy. I don't think that the underlying currents are purely healthy. Thank you. And last question. If you died surfing tomorrow what might you want written on your gravestone? I would say his daughters and wife and friends loved when he was around. Loved having him around. I was wrestling with something like, oh, he helped people, you know, he helped people deepen their self-awareness. But I think that that was actually, as I thought through it, I'm like, that's kind of, I think that's what I'm supposed to say. But what I really wanted to say is just like this like group of people loved having him around. He was present. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well, um, this has been it's been so much fun. Uh, where can where's the best place for listeners to learn more about the world of K? You have an amazing podcast, which I will give a shout out to. Um, you have an amazing newsletter, which I've been subscribed to since before newsletters were even a thing. Uh, <laughs> tiny letter days. Yeah, right. I, I had one of those. Um, where where would you like to direct people to? Yeah. So thank you. Uh, this has been awesome. That's like pure aliveness. Every single hour, seventy one minutes of this conversation. And thank you, listeners, as well. Um, Radreads.co. Sign up for a newsletter. That's kind of the the hub for everything. Pretty active on uh, Twitter, but that's 
slowly been fading. Um, so Twitter is where I'm, I used to be the most active and then Instagram and uh, TikTok. Instagram is probably next. And then I'm playing around with TikTok and YouTube. Everyone follow Kay on TikTok. I'm going to, I'm going to highlight that <laughs> link in there. <laughs> Get me to a thousand so I can put my link in bio. I'm at 423. <laughs> Kay's alive. This isn't TikTok. So uh... <laughs> amazing. Well, um, I'd like to close with this, this line from Real Kay. He said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is one question that is alive in your consciousness right now? And what is one question that you might leave our listeners with? So it's funny, we've been talking a lot about games. And so in my consciousness, there's, you know, Andrew Taggart, people would say, what's beyond games? So that one is... I, I don't I I feel like that's a like a black belt question and I'm still a blue belt so it still feels <laughs> far away but uh but but I see it I I, I honor it and then a, a more tactical question I think this has been m more around you know alcohol consumption is uh, what am I unwilling to feel right now mm, that's a beautiful question from from Tara Brock yeah that, that will give you a lot of mileage right there um yeah the first question feels almost like a Hit Cohen. It's like you, you sit with it long enough and it'll like break your brain in a certain exactly. way. And you're all, uh, <laughs> yeah, experiencing enlightenment. Um, well, man, thank you so much. This has been such, such fun. Uh, I'm so glad we, we finally did this. And uh, yeah, get some waves for me while I'm landlocked in Boulder. Sounds good. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks, everyone. This was awesome. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. Thanks for listening. <laughs>